All right, here we go, episode 14 of the Main Polls Podcast. Today, I'm going to do a rundown on some of the energy bills being considered in the legislature. And I'm starting with LD43 and LD622. These are sponsored by Senator Timberlake of Androscoggin County and Representative Ardell of Monticello. They are identical bills aimed at removing the 100 megawatt cap on how large certain renewable energy facilities can be before no longer qualifying for Maine's Renewable Portfolio Standard. The argument for Renewable Portfolio Standard, or RPS, is that it encourages investment into renewable energy development. It mandates by law that Maine's distribution companies, so Central Maine Power or Versant, for example, are required to have a certain percentage of electricity they distribute to their customers come from a list of certified renewable energy generators, and that percentage keeps going up because the goal is 100% renewable. The state mandate, combined with the scarcity of renewable energy compared to other sources, allows certified renewable energy companies to charge a premium for what they generate. Justification for the 100 megawatt cap within the renewable portfolio argues that to encourage not just investment, but actual growth of Maine's renewable energy sector requires protection from large renewable energy producers from driving down the premium paid for renewable energy to a point where small-scale and upstart renewable sources are economically non-viable. There are a number of other energy sources that may qualify for Maine's renewable portfolio. In addition to wind and solar farms, which are already exempt from the 100 megawatt cap, tidal power, fuel cells, geothermal installations, biomass generators, and hydroelectric facilities are also eligible for Maine's renewable portfolio. Unlike the attempt in 2019 when Representative Jeff Hanley from Pittston proposed removing the 100 megawatt cap on hydroelectric generators, as it had been for solar and wind farms, which I covered back then in a write-up that is still up at themainpolis.com if you want to read about that, Timberlake and Ardell are proposing the 100 megawatt cap be removed as a rule entirely. Despite the change in approach with the Timberlake-Ardell bills, the effect would be the same. Removal of the 100 megawatt cap whether it be for all the renewables or just hydroelectric specifically, would only benefit Hydro-Quebec while likely hindering Maine's homegrown energy sector. The reason it would likely only benefit Hydro-Quebec is because of all the forms of renewable energy that may qualify for Maine's renewable portfolio, there are only three on that list capable of generating more than 100 megawatts and are also connected to the New England grid. Those three renewable sources are wind farms, solar farms, and hydroelectric facilities. Of the remaining forms of renewable energy that qualify for Maine's renewable energy portfolio, none are capable of adding anywhere near 100 megawatts of electricity to our grid. Tidal power, for example, remains effectively hypothetical for large-scale production. The best-known example in Maine is the Ocean Renewable Power Company, they launched a grid-tied unit near Eastport in 2012 to great fanfare. However, that turbine failed and was removed less than a year later. In the decades since their first commercial attempt, and despite $40 million in federal funding, Ocean Renewable Power Company has yet to launch another tidal turbine in Maine. What success Ocean Renewable Power Company has seen has been in launching units in remote Alaskan villages that are capable of generating between 4 and 8 megawatts at most. Fuel cells have become less hypothetical within the past decade 
However, their application within Maine's energy market remains non-existent. One notable exception, a design developed by a Connecticut company, Fuel Cell Energy, in a partnership with ExxonMobil, can generate at least 150 megawatts and potentially as much as 500 megawatts. The caveat for that particular fuel cell technology, however, is that the design is based on carbon capture from existing natural gas generators, and so would require being located with an already existing natural gas facility. Maine right now has, I think, like six natural gas facilities, and all but one was built around 2000. So five of them are over 20 years old now, and the remaining was built in the 50s and is only capable of 12.5 megawatts. And it's likely mainly for powering the paper mill it's part of. Those other five, however, are all rated over 100 megawatts. The largest two, Westbrook Energy Center and VZ's main independent station, are both rated over 500 megawatts. So hypothetically, one of these larger facilities could adopt this new technology and potentially as much as double their current output. But Maine has taken such a hard stance against its natural gas sector that any of those facilities would be hard pressed to justify that type of financial investment when state regulations are working against their long-term existence. Generating electricity with geothermal is another example of the technology existing to support facilities capable of generating 100 megawatts or more, but, like fuel cells, is a non-existent energy source within Maine. Geothermal is very popular in the western states. In fact, California is home to some of the largest geothermal plants in the world. The geysers in northern California, for example, uses more than 300 wells spread across a 45 square mile area to generate over 700 megawatts. But it works out there because they have active hot springs and their geology is better suited for it than New England's. However, there is currently an effort from a Massachusetts startup using some sort of new boring technique that can drill down 12 miles. They believe they'll be able to convert any current coal, oil, or natural gas plant into a geothermal plant and the technology would permit geothermal development anywhere on Earth. The last article I found on this endeavor was that they procured $40 million to stay afloat, so maybe someday they'll have a working prototype, or maybe they'll end up like Ocean Renewable Power Company. A lot of excitement, but not enough success. Currently, outside of wind, solar, and hydroelectric, the only renewable energy technologies that generate renewable energy for Maine are its decreasing number of biomass and municipal waste facilities. However, unlike wind or solar, effectively none of Maine's biomass or municipal waste generating facilities can generate anywhere close to 100 megawatts. I say effectively because there are technically two facilities that show up as rated over 100 megawatts. The Rumford Cogeneration Plant and the Somerset Waste Plant are rated 102.6 and 107 megawatts respectively. But both of those facilities are using biomass mixed with either natural gas, oil, or coal so they don't qualify as renewable. When we're talking just straight biomass or municipal waste, the largest the state has is an 80 megawatt facility in Franklin County along the Androscoggin River at a paper mill that just closed down. So I'm not even sure if that's still running or if it is running, if it's running at capacity. And then the next largest after that is probably the 48 megawatt facility in Stratton, then the 39 megawatt facility in Livermore Falls, and then they get progressively smaller from there right down to single digits. Now, like geothermal, a straight biomass facility can go bigger than 100 megawatts, 
The largest biomass facility that's not co-firing with fossil fuels is one in Japan that's rated for 300 megawatts. After that, some of the largest are found in Poland and Finland, where the largest ones are between 150 and 250 megawatts. The largest in North America is the 205 megawatt Adikokan generating station in Ontario, Canada. The largest in the U.S. can be found in Florida and Texas, and both of those are just barely over 100 megawatts, and none of those are able to export into the New England grid. So there are no biomass facilities in line to benefit from dropping the cap, and according to those within the sector, dropping the cap will likely ruin what biomass the state currently has. So both solar and wind facilities are already exempt from the 100 megawatt cap. And of all the renewable energy sources that are not exempt, fuel cells, geothermal, tidal, biomass, hydroelectric. Hydroelectric is the only one that actually exists within Maine's energy mix and could potentially be coming from hydro facilities larger than 100 megawatts. However, even though it's possible for hydroelectric to generate far more than 100 megawatts, and that Maine does in fact have several hydroelectric facilities across the state, None of the hydro facilities in Maine are that big. The largest in Maine is rated around 80 megawatts, but like biomass, most are significantly less. Okay, sidestep here. According to Wikipedia and comments from the governor's office that were then quoted in a Maine Wire article, there is one hydro facility in Maine that generates over 100 megawatts. The Millinocket Dolby Project is set up on the Penobscot River and according to Wikipedia, is capable of 135.7 megawatts. But I'm pretty sure that wiki article is wrong. I followed up on the cited sources, and one of them just redirected the front page of the EPA, and another showed that the Millinocket Dolby project is technically two hydroelectric facilities about eight miles from each other. And for water control and energy output, they work in tandem, and have a combined rated output of 55 megawatts. So less than 100 megawatts, like all the other hydroelectric facilities in Maine. However, there are hydroelectric facilities that are capable of generating over 100 megawatts. They're located outside of New England, and unlike those 100 megawatt plus geothermal or biomass facilities, they actually could export into the New England grid. Those facilities, some capable of thousands of megawatts, are owned and operated by Hydro-Quebec. So to reiterate, as it is right now, the only potential renewable energy source that removing this 100 megawatt cap would actually benefit is hydroelectric imported from Hydro-Quebec. Hydro-Quebec already exports a portion of their surplus energy into New England's grid, as well as the New York grid and its neighboring provinces. Currently though, when Hydro-Quebec's exported surplus is used within Maine, the prices are basically set using a few different quasi-free market frameworks ISO New England manages, something I go into great detail in in episode 5. This framework, among other things, places Hydro-Quebec in competition with natural gas generators throughout New England, the region's two remaining nuclear power plants, biomass facilities co-firing with fossil fuels along with what few places are still using coal or oil. Removing the cap grants Hydro-Quebec the ability to compete within a sector of the energy market that it's currently not permitted to enter, and subsequently that its current competitors are barred from entering. And I just want to sidestep here for a moment to reiterate another point. 
the way it's set up here in Maine right now, okay, so Hydro-Quebec has about 20 hydro facilities smaller than 100 megawatts, as well as wind farms that could qualify for Maine's renewable portfolio. However, the way it's set up there in Quebec is that they can't, or at least they aren't willing to divvy up production capacity in that way. Massachusetts found this out the hard way a few years ago when they passed the legislation that eventually led to CMP trying to build the corridor, another point covered in episode 5, but part of the deal they tried to do was to get Hydro-Quebec to agree to effectively enter their brand new Romaine complex with a long-term lease with the state of Massachusetts, which Hydro-Quebec refused to do. The energy they generate comes from a mix of hydroelectric resources and what they export are portions of that mix. That's how buying from Hydro-Quebec works. Okay, now, there were a few different quotes I pulled from the provided testimonies. The first one is from one of the sponsors, Senator Timberlake, as well as a portion of what the Maine Policy Institute had to say. And then I've got testimony from a spokesman from the professional logging contractors of Maine as well. Okay, the quote from Timberlake, quote, I'm not saying this legislation is the magic bullet, but I believe it would help lower the cost of electricity here in Maine. This legislation would allow the ratepayers of Maine to have access to all forms of power at the lowest prices. It is proven that hydroelectric generation meets all requirements we need in our future. It is clean, it is renewable, and it is cheaper than most other forms of energy. I ask that we work together to pass this legislation so that we help our constituents have lower electricity bills. Okay, and the last bit of testimony from the Maine Policy Institute reads, quote, In 2012, the Beacon Hill Institute estimated that RPS will raise the cost of electricity by $83 million by 2020 for the state's residential consumers, increasing electricity prices by 1.24 cents per kilowatt hour in the medium risk scenario. In reality, the average monthly retail electricity price in Maine grew from 11.8 cents per kilowatt hour in 2012 to 13.5 cents per kilowatt hour in 2020, about 1.7 cents greater than the worst case scenario in the Beacon Hill Institute report. Heightened energy prices hurt Maine households and businesses and, in turn, inflict significant harm on the state economy. This is the reason why several states such as West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Ohio have recently taken action to repeal or reform their RPS requirements. The best case scenario for main ratepayers would be a quick and unceremonious repeal of RPS, but if it must exist, there is no reason to discriminate between clean, emitting energy sources by capacity size. The 100 megawatt cap is an absurd and nonsensical policy that should be repealed immediately. Okay, and the final one I've got here from the Professional Logging Contractors of Maine. Quote, As of 2017, logging and trucking contractors in Maine employed over 3,900 people directly and were indirectly responsible for the creation of an additional 5,400 jobs. A majority of our membership provides biomass chips to the generators in the state who use wood to create electricity and heat. Those customers include both paper mills, standalone wood electric facilities, and combined heat and power plants. We have estimated that the wood energy industry in Maine contributes over 400 direct jobs at the plants and at least another 900 indirect jobs, primarily in rural regions of the state. The total impact of the state of Maine annually is roughly $300 million per year. This total 
contribution does not quantify the employment and economic benefit provided by our paper, sawmill, or pellet facilities who both produce and consume wood for energy. LD43 and LD622 attempt to remove the 100 megawatt capacity limit for a generator. The PLC of Maine feels that this change would do nothing to lower the cost of energy in the state and it would only benefit Canadian companies as well as the energy-hungry states to the south of us. Additionally, it would likely create an unfair competitive advantage for one specific generation source over another, and it could seriously jeopardize an already wounded industry. He goes on, Wood is renewable. It is cultivated locally in Maine, and it has a significant economic impact upon our state, more so than any other source of energy we have. It doesn't look like there was much else for written testimony from the renewable sector this time around, perhaps because they don't expect these bills to go very far with the current legislative makeup, but I pulled testimony from the Maine Renewable Energy Association from when this was tried back in 2019 because it summed up where much of the opposition was coming from. This is a quote. The existing RPS in Maine and in other New England states has led to tremendous investment in Maine facilities by our members totaling well over $2 billion in the last 15 years. These companies pay in excess of $20 million annually in property taxes and have paid out more than $100 million in wages and employ approximately 2,500 Maine citizens, end quote. They also argued that allowing Hydro-Quebec into Maine's renewable energy portfolio would crash the price for renewable energy and drive Maine's biomass industry out of business and questioned becoming even more dependent upon a foreign country's state-owned energy company. And in all the years this has been raised in the legislature, that is effectively where the discussion leaves off before the bill dies in committee. Now, Timberlake and the Maine Policy Institute have an important point. Energy in Maine is too damn high. Energy costs more in Maine when compared to the rest of the country, and it has been that way for a long time. And it's pretty easy to show that our RPS program played a pivotal role in pushing that price well above the national average. But like the logging contractors and Renewable Energy Association, I'm not convinced that dropping this cap would alleviate the price of energy like proponents expect. And I think it'll hurt Maine's homegrown energy sector in the long run. What I'd expect to happen is that there might be some relief because it could stabilize prices in a way our current renewable sector really can't do at this point. But what is that stabilized price? The scale in which Hydro-Quebec generates energy compared to what Maine's homegrown energy sector can muster simply isn't comparable. They can generate at such a scale and have so much in reserve just waiting to be turned on, they are easily capable of operating at a loss for a period of time if it meant keeping that price artificially low, only to raise the price after our homegrown energy sector collapses. And at that point, Maine would find itself wholly dependent upon not just a single source of energy above all others, but a single source that only one company can provide, and that company just happens to also be owned, operated, and subsidized by a foreign government. And so that's something to keep in mind too when I'm talking about our industry having to compete with this large-scale hydroelectric behemoth to the north. It's not like here when the state allows a biomass facility to shutter, or an old dam or nuclear plant gets decommissioned, or a utility company gets sold off to a New York company, then it becomes a subsidiary of a Spanish company that's two biggest shareholders are the government of Qatar and the investment firm BlackRock. 
The Spanish company, of course, is permitted to not just own distribution companies, but also renewable energy facilities, natural gas distribution companies, and soon-to-be-built transmission corridors in the region. It's allowed to operate as this opaque regional monopoly, transferring ungodly amounts of capital from New England to the Qatar government and BlackRock. Up in Quebec, however, that whole industry is monopolized more openly under the state-owned Hydro-Quebec. So, regulations don't put facilities out of business, they promote them. Old, inefficient biomass or hydro facilities aren't decommissioned, they're updated, and they actually build brand new facilities, all financially backed by the province of Quebec. And there's no selling off assets to companies in other states or countries, because the entire sector, from generation, transmission, and distribution, is vertically integrated under Hydro-Quebec. This happens because Quebec has granted them a legal monopoly on the province's energy sector with the mandate that they are to provide electricity as cheaply as possible to the residents of Quebec and turning over any profits to the provincial government. So everything Hydro-Quebec does is geared toward getting electricity as cheap as possible for Quebecers. Their sole purpose is much different than the purpose of the monopoly currently running our energy sector. But regardless... By removing that 100 megawatt cap, what we're inviting into the state is the risk of becoming energy dependent upon a company owned and financed by a foreign government. A company, because of its state ownership, is free to operate outside of free market principles with full government backing. Regardless of mismanagement or poor planning or environmental concerns, none of that matters. The other thing I want to reiterate here is something I touched on already, but both the testimony of Timberlake and the Maine Policy Institute are written in a way to make a person think that currently Maine does not have access to the quote-unquote clean energy produced by Hydro-Quebec, and that premise is 100% inaccurate. Hydroelectric energy from Hydro-Quebec is already one of the top sources of energy powering Maine. Like I mentioned before, the only change here is that they would now be permitted to charge a premium. So to be clear, Maine is already buying energy from Hydro-Quebec. Hydro-Quebec refuses to participate in Maine's RPS credit system as it is today. Even if Hydro-Quebec were enticed to compete within Maine's renewable portfolio market, there is no guarantee or even a suggestion from Hydro-Quebec that they would actually increase the amount exported into New England. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't simply just export the same amount as always, but would now be permitted to charge more for what they were already exporting here anyway. So... Unless there's actually evidence to show allowing them to compete against our energy sector would result in lower prices, any suggestion that it would is complete speculation dependent upon Hydro-Quebec agreeing to do something that they've never publicly agreed to do and could do already if they really wanted to do. Another variable here is the demands from New York's power grid. Hydro-Quebec exports energy into their grid as well. And their state government is looking at the same questions Maine's legislature is asking themselves, which is how to bring more Canadian hydro into the state's energy mix. Phasing out gas stoves and replacing them with electric stoves is one example of what those policies can look like, but there are others and New York State is pushing a lot of them. So not only would we be potentially beholden to a single foreign government to keep our lights on, New York's growing demand will result in driving the price up in New England. Massachusetts attempted to address this problem by trying to get Hydro-Quebec to share information on specifically how much they could potentially even generate for the export market, which is something that to this point, 
Hydro-Quebec has refused to share and has offered zero assurances that growing demand in New York would not affect prices in New England. Now, something I think both Timberlake and the Maine Policy Institute get wrong is the idea that the product Hydro-Quebec is selling is clean energy. First off, Maine has nothing in their legislation that says anything about quote-unquote clean energy. The term clean energy, whether they are aware of it or not, is the same phrasing used by Hydro-Quebec to promote their energy mix to export markets. The problem is that clean energy has no established definition in Maine, and for Hydro-Quebec, it's a marketing gimmick, a coined phrase to help generate an idea in someone's head, and that idea is that the product Hydro-Quebec puts out is clean. That phrasing, clean energy, exists within Massachusetts regulations, is defined as hydroelectric over 100 megawatts, and they did that specifically as a way to entice Hydro-Quebec into working with them. But is it clean? I argued in episode 8 that it's not. The evidence I laid out showed that not only are the reservoirs themselves an ecological disaster, but the water discharged downstream of these facilities that then drain into the ocean currents that feed the Gulf of Maine is causing our Gulf's subarctic ecosystem to collapse. No more cod, no more shrimp, no more puffins, no more right whales, and no more of the plankton that feeds them. The premise, however, that Timberlake and the Maine Policy Institute are pushing isn't wrong. Energy prices in Maine are too high, and the RPS program is clearly a root cause to why our economy struggles. These renewable portfolio-style programs are great at promoting certain energy sources, but they are definitely not so good at lowering energy costs. So what can be done? If not the 100 megawatt cap, then what? Well, I'm not ready for full repeal, as has been argued, but some significant overhaul is certainly called for. I mean, at this point, the rule's only purpose, despite all the language around it about tidal power and fuel cells or whatever, what it's being used for now is a way to keep Hydro-Quebec from direct competition with Maine's renewable energy sector. And a big reason for that is because some of the energy technologies Maine's RPS pushed for well, some of them turned out to be duds or likely impractical for large-scale development in Maine. So it's likely time to reevaluate the purpose of Maine's RPS. Do we only care about solar and wind? Because those are the only two that appear to be thriving. One of the angles I haven't seen proposed as of yet is that rather than do away with the cap, maybe it's time to raise the cap. Say we raise it to 300 megawatts, or perhaps a separate renewable credit system is created for 100 to 500 megawatts with the idea being that Maine's hydroelectric and biomass facilities would have more incentive for upgrades and expansion if doing so wouldn't mean being removed from the renewable portfolio. As new technology develops, it may also encourage geothermal development for the region if it's known Maine will pay a premium. This would still discourage Hydro-Quebec though because, like I explained earlier, they don't divvy up their energy mix and I doubt they'll change their mind if we just bump up the cap instead of being like Vermont and removing it entirely. Now, I've got my issues with Hydro-Quebec, but if that's something people want to do to try and bring more Canadian hydro into Maine's energy mix, then there's other options. For example, we could do what we always do and just replicate Massachusetts by creating an entirely separate category within the energy portfolio that requires clean energy. So a certain percentage of their energy portfolio mandates renewables like Maine does, and a separate percentage must come from clean energy, which Massachusetts then negotiated with Hydro-Quebec to provide using the yet-to-be-built New England Clean Energy Connect project through Western Maine. Remember that, it's not for Maine, 
It's to fulfill a contract with Massachusetts. That's its sole purpose. And it's the same deal down there in Mass. That clean energy will be, hypothetically, in addition to whatever else they're already exporting into Massachusetts. Some through the markets set up and maintained by ISO New England, some from pre-existing long-term contracts. I'm pretty sure Mass still has some of those in place. Vermont definitely does. Which is probably a good example of prices still being pretty high even when fully cooperating with Hydro-Quebec. But a long-term contract or just creating a parallel credit system to the renewable one that requires clean energy? Either of those are viable options that would get Hydro-Quebec a better deal, maybe add some price stability if nothing else, but still protect the in-state energy markets we're trying to foster. Which brings another problem raised by proponents of dropping the cap, and it's that what we have for hydroelectric combined with the few struggling biomass facilities and the intermittent supply of wind and solar is not going to cut it for what Maine needs for zero carbon. Especially when a good chunk of the renewables Maine already does produce is being sold into Massachusetts, which is the case for some of those big wind farms. The energy is sold into their state's renewable portfolio because their credit system pays better than ours. For Maine to reach a point where the state's energy sector generates enough for ourselves and enough for export into Massachusetts, it's going to require changes to the scope of energy sources focused on as renewable. For example, the question of a nuclear-powered Maine needs to be back on the table. It was a mistake to allow Maine Yankee, a 900-megawatt facility, to deteriorate and be decommissioned rather than bite the bullet and invest in upgrades or whatever needed to be done to keep it operational. But at the time, it seemed like the thing to do. So, there were three bills proposed by Republicans attempting to discuss nuclear power in Maine. LD-689 wanted to put a working group together to study the idea of building a nuclear power facility in Maine. That bill died in committee. LD-1549 deals with small, modular nuclear reactors. What are modular nuclear reactors? Well, they're modular, so they can be built off-site and assembled on location, and they're smaller than what one would normally think of when thinking of a nuclear power plant. LD-1549 is specifically focused on modular reactors capable of no more than 350 megawatts. And all LD-1549 would have done is required the main PUC to put out informational bids for small modular nuclear reactors. So once a year, they would gather information on the timing involved in getting a modular site up and running and the cost to build along with annual operating costs. And once a year, the main PUC would give a report to the legislature. That bill also died in committee. Okay, the final bill dealing with nuclear, LD486. This bill would provide subsidies to small nuclear module manufacturers. The bill wanted to encourage the manufacture of nuclear power modules that could then be put on barges off the coast of the state for transport to coastal areas in Maine without reliable electricity. That one also died in committee. Now, shutting those down as quickly as the Democrat-led legislature did was pretty short-sighted. And the reason I say this is because there is actually a small modular nuclear reactor design that the federal government approved just this past January. It's only the seventh nuclear reactor design approved for use in the United States. The other six are for traditional light water reactors and are capable of a much larger output, like, for example, the former 900 megawatt Maine Yankee in Wiscasset. These new modular reactors, however, are capable of about 50 megawatts, 
and the new design is supposedly cheaper to assemble. It's easier to set up at the site, and it could be used in conjunction with other nearby modules to act as a single output source. So unlike Tidal Power, which is still hypothetical for Maine's needs, there exists currently a new type of nuclear reactor capable of filling the intermittent gaps from wind and solar energy sources, and the current Democrat-led legislature isn't interested in hearing about it. Given the environmental damage caused by large-scale hydroelectric, these new reactors could be argued to be as clean, if not cleaner, than what Hydro-Quebec could provide. There's no reason that, if the legislature was interested in growing Maine's non-carbon energy sector, that modular nuclear under 100 megawatts couldn't be included within Maine's RPS credit system. Or perhaps, as I suggested earlier, creating a separate requirement for clean energy that includes hydroelectric over 100 megawatts and modular nuclear power units. It could even include fuel cells from carbon capture like I mentioned earlier too. Having a separate quote-unquote clean energy requirement could have the potential to allow some legislative wiggle room dealing with their zero carbon emission goal. Alright, I was going to cover a couple of other things, but those aren't quite done yet. And I'm already over 30 minutes into this, so I'll wrap it up here. And hopefully I'll have something out in a couple of weeks. Also, I do have a write-up on the website looking at a bill that wants to give uh, the governor a raise. You can read that at themainpolis.com. If you're not familiar with the website, every podcast and write-up I've done can be found there. I try to put up links to other sources that are covering politics and policy for Maine too. There's also menus set up for anyone that wants to contact their U.S. or state reps. Check out their press release pages or the press release pages of a bunch of different state departments and agencies. You want to search for a bill that's being proposed or when the committee meeting is, it's all there. Also, I'm pretty sure people should be good finding the show wherever it is you listen to podcasts now. With the exception of Spotify, not sure what I'm doing wrong on that one, but I'm working on it. Alright, that's all I got. Thanks for listening. Oop, I guess I got a little bit more. While I was wrapping this one up, the committee looking at the two bills wanting to drop the 100 megawatt cap released their decision and... Timberlake's bill, LD42, got an ought not to pass from the whole committee, but Ardell's bill, LD622, which was an identical bill, ended up with a divided report and a majority saying ought not to pass and a minority saying ought to pass. The report doesn't show the committee members' political parties, but it shows where they represent and Judging by the communities they represent, I'm guessing this basically broke right along or pretty close to party lines, with the Democrats saying ought not to pass and the Republicans saying ought to pass. And looking back at the half dozen times a rendition of this bill has been proposed in the state legislature since 2016, each time it ended up in a divided report with a Democrat majority shutting it down. But because of this push toward electric stoves, electric heat, and electric cars, combined with this gradual increase in the percentage of our energy supply coming from renewable energy mandated by our legislature, we can assume that the demand for renewable energy is about to grow exponentially for at least a couple of decades. Looking back at the other times this was proposed, There were a couple where the break wasn't along party lines, and the ought not to pass carried by only one or two votes, and the comments coming from the governor's office at this point, rather than being dismissive in tone like is so often the case, 
The governor's office submitted testimony opposing the bill on its face, but conceded that changes are likely necessary and were open to suggestions. That's a big shift in messaging. So this question of removing the 100 megawatt cap is definitely not going away, especially if the Republicans can make any gains within the legislature during the next election cycle. Alright, I guess that's it for real this time. Thanks for listening.